The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us again and great to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, over to you to kick us off for today's discussion. Thanks, John. So I thought we'd spend today just going through all the uh, good material and, and discussion that we could have based on last weekend's Berkshire annual meeting. So I was there in person. I think you guys both listened or watched remotely, and it was great to be there in person again. So I was there last year as well, but last year I think still had quite a bit of COVID hangover element to it. I mean, it was very noticeable last year that there were just far, far fewer international visitors. You know, again, I don't know what the numbers would say, but I would have to guess that at least a quarter maybe a third or more of all the people that go to the Berkshire meeting come in from uh, outside the U.S. And uh, they were certainly back in full force this year. So it it very much felt like a normal uh, Berkshire meeting, uh, similar to what it was like before COVID. And I was actually talking about this this morning uh, with a friend of mine who's gone, uh, you know, many years as well, like I have. And we both agree that if you blindfolded somebody or even if you didn't blindfold them and you just put one video up next to the other and you had this year's Berkshire meeting and the one from 10 years ago that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, which is really a stunning statement when you come to think of it. I mean, Buffett going from 82 to 92 and Munger going from 89 to 99 and not being able to tell the difference is just an astounding uh, statement and achievement. Uh, they really are remarkably sharp you know there's really been no change at all it's like time has just stood still in a lot of ways so uh really remarkable and impressive in, in that sense and it, it was good to be back and see a bunch of old friends uh and, and get the catechism again so i'll i'll go through a list i made kind of eight or ten things that really stood out to me that i thought were interesting ideas that were worth discussing and then i want you guys to uh either throw out yours or react to the the ones that i picked and then i have a little uh, game to play at the end that I thought was interesting that I saw somebody send around. So I thought maybe the most interesting, uh, and not provocative, but uh, maybe somewhat counterintuitive thing that Buffett said the whole weekend was that in, quote, in 58 years running Berkshire, I would say there's been a great increase in the number of people doing dumb things and they do big dumb things. And he said that in the context of it, creating more opportunities to make money. And so, you know, the the kind of the subcontext to that was that he was referring to all the craziness that's been happening in the world. You know, he didn't call these things out, but, you know, clearly things like meme stock mania and all manner of folly and nonsense created by zero interest rates and crypto and everything else. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he, this is where I always have to explain to people that might be new to listening or, or reading what Buffett says and does, or anyone for that matter, which is that you have to hold two competing ideas in your head at once, because he would certainly also say and agree that markets are now far more efficient than they were 58 years ago, right? The instantaneous ability to access any information on a device in your phone, on your phone, in your pocket is a massive, massive difference from when you used to have to send away uh, for any reports on a massive time lag. So, but I, I did think that was really interesting because you know, he said over and over again that he'd love to be born again today and have a small pile of money and and do big things with it. Um, and so despite the fact that we might think that, uh, you know, humankind has advanced in leaps and bounds in the last 58 years and we're all much smarter than we were back then, 
uh, he would seem to be saying the opposite, which is that people are doing more dumb things than they used to, and they're doing big dumb things, which is really kind of amazing. The other, uh, yeah, there were several topics of the day, I would say, but the banks were right at the top of the list. He actually prearranged a little gag where he had big uh, placard name cards made up for himself, and he was available for sale, and Charlie's was held to maturity. So that got a good laugh from people. But you know, I think the message of the day was that they were quite cautious about banks. And look, I would say that his track record as a bank investor is as close to flawless as you could ever get. You know, he used to own a bank in its entirety uh, in Rockford, Illinois, and he he loved it and it was a great bank and had to sell it when the Bank Holding Company Act of 1970 required him to do so. But, you know, since then, he's made many, many enormously profitable investments in banks. And it's very noticeable that he is not making any new investments in banks today. On the subject of Bank of America, he did say that he really likes management. He also emphasized that he's somewhat loyal to the company because he went to them and proposed the deal in 2011 that really brought him into the company in a big way. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's quite noticeable. You know, the, the silence is deafening, as they say. Um, you know, he pointed out, I think, rightly so, that the nature of deposits and the the nature of bank runs has just fundamentally changed. And, you know, now you can you can be sitting anywhere. You could be, you know, sitting in your backyard. Don't even have to get out of bed and you can pull your entire deposit account out. You don't have to go stand in line for three hours and watch somebody count out bills. It's just instantaneous. And that is a fundamental change in behavior. Um, and I agree. I think the nature of that is, um, is has changed and is still being felt. And, and we still don't know the ultimate implications of that. He cited plenty of other things. Uh, both he and Munger both called out the pain in commercial real estate and the hollowing out of commercial districts and downtown areas and and thought that pain was going to be substantial uh certainly not trivial and that the you know the the buildings aren't going to go away but the owners might change and might go away you know the fallout from covid and higher interest rates uh is very real and is is not over by any stretch of the imagination he buffett also said that had the deposits at silicon valley bank been lost that it would have been catastrophic that was his word. Um, I would have thought he'd be a little, uh, not sanguine, but a little less dire on that. I mean, I think Silicon Valley Bank wasn't quite as interconnected and and potential. It didn't have quite the same potential to cause catastrophe as some of the interconnected banks in the global financial crisis of 15 years ago, but he very intentionally chose the word catastrophic. He also, I think, rightly called out the very poor communication from the banking industry you know, the executives, the regulators, the media, and how they have failed to limit the panic that's spread amongst the public. And again, I mean, one of the things I'll never forget um, from this episode of March 2023 was just how clueless and uninformed the venture capital community was. And so it doesn't bode well if, if you know, these venture capitalists that control tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars doesn't understand how the banking system works. It doesn't bode well for the rest of the general public, and he's got a great point there. Uh, artificial intelligence probably came up three or four or five times at least. I kind of lost count. Um, you know, I think at one point Buffett paraphrased Einstein and said, "If it, it can change everything in the world except how men think and behave," <laughs> which is kind of a good way of putting it. I thought. I mean. Munger was a little more uh, definitive, I'd say, in that he was skeptical of the hype. Um, and he, he took a moment to defend old-fashioned intelligence and said, you know, it, it can't replace Ajit Jain. It can't tell me what investments to make. Um, but Buffett also compared it to the atomic bomb and its destructive potential. So, you know, pretty sobering moment there. Uh, Buffett later said that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, and he sees absolutely no other option for it, um, uh, no other option to replace it, rather. So he sees the U.S. dollar continuing in that role, and I tend to completely agree. I had some interesting debates with people who still seem to think that the Chinese currency is a is a viable alternative or that, you know, crypto or something will, will do it, but that's certainly not Buffett's view. There was a decent amount of commentary about Chinese-U.S. relations, and uh, Munger called it stupid, stupid, stupid that there's so much tension, and they both said it was an absolute imperative that the U.S. and China get along and that they need each other and that they don't have to be 
you know, total lackeys, but they don't have to give away the shop either. And, and they need to find a way to coexist. Uh, referring to some specific companies, it was pretty interesting. He completely and openly dismissed the potential for an outright purchase of 100% of Oxy. Um, he said, we're not buying control. We wouldn't know what to do with it. So they have a 24% stake. I believe it's worth about 12 or $13 billion right now. He thinks very highly of management. He thinks oil is going to have to be around for a long time. And uh, th- they're quite happy with that. He said he's thrilled to own the shares that they do. Obviously, isn't going to comment on buying or selling. But uh, Munger later said that, you know, he thinks this was an interesting point that I agree with was that even if you want to take a completely agnostic view of climate change, that it makes sense to invest in a switch to more renewable sources of energy, because then that would allow you to preserve the hydrocarbons, which are in a, in a, in a great sense, irre, irreplaceable. They just do things that other forms of energy can't do. And they are, by definition, uh, non-renewable. And uh, and so I, I thought that's an interesting point that I would hope most reasonable people could agree about. Um, as it referred to Activision, you know, he made some pretty optimistic comments about that last year owned a multi-billion dollar stake in the common. And uh, he said in this case that he thought Microsoft met the opposition more than halfway and that the deal should have been approved, but not everything that does or not everything that should happen does happen. He thinks the British government's making a mistake and what Berkshire will do from here will depend on a lot of things. So, you know, he didn't comment explicitly about what they're going to be doing with the stake, but uh, I think he made it pretty clear that they're, actively considering the situation and uh we'll see what they end up doing with that uh apple it was an interesting one he got a question i don't know if someone maybe misquoted uh professor demoterin asked what demoterin at nyu about apple being 35 percent of the berkshire portfolio or 35 percent of berkshire um and i'd have to look it out it's 150 and 60 billion so maybe if they were I don't know how they would have quite come up with that figure, but he said, obviously it's not 35%, but even if it were, you know, so what basically it's, it's a great business. We bought it at the right price. It's a better business than any we own. Uh, he said, iPhone status with customers makes it an extraordinary product. They're paying a thousand or 1500 for it, but would pay far more. Uh, he doesn't have to understand every aspect of the technology because he can understand consumer behavior. Uh, and he made it pretty clear that, he has not seen consumer sentiment or consumer behavior quite that strong and entrenched and favorable in a long, long time. Uh, Paramount, you know, that's an interesting one because he commented quite a bit about that on his trip to Japan just a few weeks ago in a negative sense. And between that interview and the meeting this past weekend, uh, they came out with a pretty negative uh, set of quarterly results and took a hatchet to the dividend and the stock fell off a cliff. I think it was down 30 or 40% that day. And, uh, he said it's obviously never good when you have to slash the dividend. <laughs> you know, a lot of companies wait too long to do that until it's too late in a lot of senses. And uh, yeah, we'll have to see what ends up happening there. I don't believe that was Buffett himself, but uh, it's a decent sized little position in the portfolio for for Berkshire. Uh, he said we're quite equivocal. We are not done with Japan yet. We'll be searching for more opportunity there. Again, reiterating uh, what he said on his trip to Japan. And said he was just pleasantly surprised by the the trading houses there. Uh, as an as an aside, they had um, Aji Jane and Greg Abel both on stage for the morning session. They both took a couple of questions directly. Uh, one of which was Greg Abel talking about the trip to Japan and, and what they'd learned there and how pleased they were with the whole situation there. Uh, he also updated in broad terms the situation at BNSF and gave a pretty clear vote of confidence in management in that sense. Uh, likewise, Ajit commented on the situation at Geico and had some pretty uh, interesting numbers and descriptions of the challenges there and how they're really grabbing the bull by the horns and investing in telematics and, and technology more broadly and you know, kind of the eye-watering uh, complexity of the systems that they're trying to build or rebuild there. So that, that was very interesting. And likewise, I think gave a pretty clear endorsement of management. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. Another interesting Ajit note was that he was disappointed that they didn't get to put a lot more capital to work in the insurance and reinsurance markets over the past year. And he said in particular, the January pricing cycle wasn't very good, but then for whatever reason, the pricing got way more favorable in April 
Uh, and he called Buffett up and and got you know in a conversation that lasted less than thirty seconds an approval to add two billion dollars um, to the to the portfolio that he was uh, capitally was putting to work in that underwriting cycle. Um, and particularly, I think the the biggest change might have been in Florida catastrophes, such that now if a big hurricane hit Florida this season, uh, they might lose up to fifteen billion dollars. And uh, if it doesn't hit this year, they would make several billion off of that. So they obviously found that pricing and those odds favorable. And, and that does make sense because you would think coming off the Hurricane Ian last year, um, which was a 60 or $70 billion insured loss, at least at this point when it hit Southwest Florida, one of the top two or three insured losses in U.S. history, you'd think the pricing would have gotten better. But for whatever reason, there was a little bit of a lag there. So uh, they wish they could get even more uh, capital put to work there. And Buffett said, you know, I sure hope Ajit calls me back very soon with another opportunity to put even more to work. So let's see. Oh, well, I'll come back to that. So I'll stop there. I, I have a couple more things to hit, but I'll, I'll stop there and let John and Elliot jump in with reactions or observations of their own. Yeah, no, that was awesome. Thank you for uh, putting that out there. And, you know, I just want to also thank Rational Walk for his great uh, Twitter thread summarizing some of the Q and a as it was happening, that was really helpful for me. I unfortunately wasn't able to make it to Omaha, but, uh, I felt like I was almost there and then got to watch some of my, some of the key parts afterwards. Um, you know, I think, you know, Phil, you pointed this out, but if I had to say one part of it that really, um, stood out to me, it was Buffett saying that piece about not understanding the tech in an iPhone, but understanding consumer behavior. And I just, you know, really think in many ways, you go back to like the 80s and 90s, that wasn't possible with a tech company the way it is today, where these things are woven into the fabric of our lives. So I think that has some ramifications for how we all think about what is and is not within our circle of competence. Like tech has been abstracted from technology. That's Um, fair. That's a good point. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, that. that one really stood out to me. Um, and yeah, it was it was interesting. You you pointed out that piece on uh, a great increase in the number of people doing dumb things. But yeah, Munger, and I guess you know even Buffett pointed out he always does this. But, but he said that value investors are going to increasingly have a harder time because there are so many competing for a smaller opportunity set. And he's coming at it from a different angle. But like there are a lot of smart people in the market and everyone's trying to find an edge. And when everyone's looking for the very same edge, well, it's not going to be easy for it to actually work. Right. Um, That's the competing idea aspect of it. I I totally agree. Because at least once or twice, Munger kind of bemoaned the fact that we have too many investors, too many investment funds, too many wealth advisors. And yeah, like I said, I don't think anyone would argue, certainly they wouldn't, that the world hasn't become far more efficient in the last six decades. So, And there's more hurting because of so many people kind of trying to find the same edges in places. And um, things seem to go to more extremes, which I think is part of what Buffett's saying with the uh, number of people doing dumb things. Um, but it's it's hard to take the other side of that because you don't know where it's going to stop. Um, and part of being yep. a value investor is being a contrarian. And that's, you know, not, not that easy. Um, Agreed. One of the things at the outset that I thought was really interesting, uh, you know, I was reading about this company, Catalent, the other day, and their CEO and uh, their C-suite basically was reluctant to admit headwinds to their business. And contrast that with Buffett in the very beginning just laying out there that there are going to be parts of Berkshire who experience falling income in 23 from 22 levels and that they're going to have to be more sales in areas where there had not been sales, sales meaning discounts in areas that hadn't happened uh, over the last couple of years. Um, just so, I mean, I think it goes without saying it's part of why we all are so enamored with Berkshire in our own ways, but like what a breath of fresh air to just hear it bluntly laid out instead of trying to decipher through uh, a bunch of corporate speak. It's, it's so different and unique. Um, yep. I wish more would learn from that example. Um, 
And I thought, uh, you know, the mention of buying a lot of T-bills recently, it's like there's no concern about the debt ceiling at all. I thought that was interesting. While the financial press tries to get us all like shaking in our boots about it and a little scared. Um, I'm not here yeah, to give any, any determination an of how to think about it, right? But who, who yeah, knows how? interesting one. Yeah, I didn't hear if he, and I'll have to go back. I may have stepped out and missed one or two questions along those lines, but I don't think he addressed an explicit uh, view that like, oh, we're definitely going to avoid a, a default or a, you know, a stare down, you know, some sort of total catastrophe here with the, with the debt ceiling. So, but that's a good point. I mean, he's talked about it plenty in the past and, and you're right. I mean, he's buying lots of T-bills, but I don't know what else you'd buy. I mean, you'd have to move it into some other domicile if you were going to totally avoid that. He's always been a huge purchaser of T-bills. So. Right. It isn't doing that right now, kind of a implicitly. Yeah, no, exactly right. That. Yeah, but I don't know if there was a question about it, and I just missed it, or uh, if if we. No, if no, it's in the. It was in the beginning before getting to the Q and A. Right, but again, like, yeah, no one in the Q and A that see. I heard said like, "Oh, you know, why are you buying so much in T bills? Aren't you worried about the the debt ceiling, or or just a, a question about the debt ceiling in general?" Which you'd think would have been top of mind, and you're right. Like, I don't think it came up. And there were a lot of questions that I'd say were macro in nature, including yeah. questions about monetizing the debt and yep. uh, you know what the Fed was doing, but not about the debt ceiling, which I thought was interesting. Always surprised at how many people try to ask, like, or want, want to hear their answers to macro questions. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that that doesn't seem to ever change, right? Yep, yep, you're in, you're out. It's uh, something you could expect. I thought the quality of the questions was pretty damn good overall. Um, yeah, it was certainly as good or better than it's been in prior years. I agree. Uh, one more favorite piece was Munger on NetJets being worth as much as any airline out there. Um, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know why that stood out to me, but it did. I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, it's definitely not the same scale as any airline it's just like a differentiated business model and i think um you know i i I would i would love to like learn more about it and hear more about how exactly the the numbers flow through yeah Um, that's that's a good point i don't know enough about the numbers and where things stand at netjet to to compare it to any of the big airlines but uh i'll say this i mean at one point, uh, they were there on Friday, and they were definitely there on Saturday. There was a massive protest of NetJets pilots, and that's happened in prior years as well. And uh, I believe they have a contract up now or up soon. Uh, but this year, far more than in prior years, a there were way more pilots. So I, you know, by a very rough estimate, on Saturday uh, during lunch, during the middle of the day, during the meeting, there had to be at least two or three or four hundred NetJets pilots protesting and, and marching around outside uh, the convention center. And then two was they hired these uh, these video billboard trucks with some extremely aggressive and negative um, messages and, and ad campaigns uh, opposing management and, you know, complaining that the schedules were sloppy and leading to fatigued pilots and claiming that they were way underpaid relative to their peers and on and on and on. They have a whole website set up to run this campaign. So I thought that was interesting that it's apparently even more contentious than it's been in the past. Interesting. I didn't know about that. And I guess, you know, the last thing I was going to say, kind of somewhat related, I'd be remiss not to ask any like interesting events or interesting uh, happenings around uh, the, the meeting. That stand out to you? Um, no, like I said, it was actually pretty normal. And and other than the, you know, if if you hadn't been paying attention for a long time, you know, the NetJets pilot thing stood out to me. But um, the convention hall was a little quieter than usual in that there was more open space. Like there were some companies that I think have been there in the past that didn't didn't choose to participate or couldn't participate or whatever. There were just a couple of open spaces where normally it's almost wall to wall. Now that said, the the people in there and the I bet the dollar spending was as high as ever. I mean, people were definitely spending like normal, uh, which is to say like crazy. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, like the bookworm, the, the bookstore with all the recommended books. Uh, I don't think there was a single new book in there with the possible exception of the Sumner Redstone family saga book that's come out. I think that was the only new book in the whole place. And the 
prices were way, way higher this year. I mean, a lot of the books were three to five dollars more expensive than they've been in the past, and they almost all sold out. Like by Saturday at you know, three o'clock or maybe even by lunch on Saturday, the whole place was cleared out. So that was pretty amazing. There was also this new, um, I don't know if you guys know what they're, they're called squishmallows. They're like these puffy. Of course I know it. Two little girls. How could I not? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So they had a, a, a new stand. And I mean, that line, I, I made the mistake of waiting until Saturday and they were sold out of almost everything. So, but the line on Friday looked like it had to be, an hour to get through it. I mean, it was just crazy. Did they have those, like Warren and Charlie Squishmallows? Is that what it they, was? They did, yeah. And those were actually the only two still available at one point on Saturday. What? All the all the Pokemon characters and all the other like normal characters sold like lightning. Like it was crazy. I guess a lot of people went needing something to bring back for their kids. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So yeah, there, like it's, other than that, there really wasn't a whole lot new like i said it felt like very much you know out of the the old 2017 18 19 kind of feel that's got to be refreshing yeah no it was good it was definitely good it was good to be back and see a lot of people and uh and hear from the berkshire folks it was it was definitely good so john do you want to react to anything or do you have any observations yeah i mean you guys have covered it really well um I'm curious, Phil, kind of reading between the lines on the on the banking stuff. I mean, do you feel like um, you know, Buffett is is kind of more down on on banking as a business because of what's been happening? Uh, I mean, you know, Berkshire certainly could have stepped up, you know, kind of to say that yeah. uh, he's loyal to B of A. That's fine, but you know this would have been potentially a huge opportunity and um you know do you feel like um you you got the sense that maybe buffett isn't so high on on the banking business uh, yeah. as a, as a business model no 100% i like i said i think there's he's not going to come out and be totally negative on it but i think the implications are pretty obvious right because you know not only has he not been buying things but he's actually sold down some positions in the not too recent past and so uh yeah i mean he always votes with his wallet and and on top of that yeah i mean he he extra, he expressed it pretty directly that you know it's just so easy to yank your deposits today and the value of anything, you know, the value of any bank, if if you're going to own it, is is the deposit intangible, the deposit franchise, right? I mean, you have to assume at some level, if you're going to pay any sort of price for a bank, that they have a customer base and a deposit base that's going to stick around. And so my additional add-on, and this is purely me, not him, would be that you, you kind of have just a triple witching, right? Because deposits are suddenly now less, not suddenly, but gradually as as just but severely and acutely as just evidenced by silicon valley bank deposits are less stable now than they used to be you have you know pressures on net interest margin as well because interest rates have gone up so much and what banks were doing for a long long time you know most of the past decade or more was paying almost nothing for those deposits so that's going to have to go up the yield curves inverted which is usually pure misery for banks and on top of it all we may well see a big credit cycle i mean or or even just a moderate credit cycle, which we haven't seen really even despite COVID. We have not seen a sustained period of meaningful charge-offs. So, you know, even if deposit or even if charge-offs get up to a, you know, a relatively benign level of 50, 100, 150 basis points a year, that's going to be all have to come through provision and all hit the income statement and, and equity capital here over the next however many quarters or years it takes to work through that. So um and, and you know, I think the comments around commercial real estate. Someone asked in the context of the banks, I think, but pretty directly, why why wouldn't Berkshire get more involved in commercial real estate? And Munger's done quite a bit there personally. And he said, well, Berkshire's never done it. It doesn't make quite as much sense on a tax-adjusted basis for Berkshire to do it as maybe some other people. But um, he just doesn't think it's going to be all that interesting for them either. And he thinks the pain is going to be pretty significant. So, And that figures in, right? Because a lot of banks do have pretty significant exposure to commercial real estate. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um any any ad- additional thoughts um on on succession? 
he he very clearly uh, reiterated that Greg Abel would be his successor, um, and that Ajit would have a clear vote as to who would be the person to replace Greg Abel in that role, but that it would be Greg's ultimate decision. But he more or less said that he expected them to kind of agree, but that he also was very clear that that wouldn't be something that they would be talking about or even finalizing a decision on anytime soon. I mean, I think the way they've always treated it is they have a name in an envelope if something unexpected happens, but uh, that name can change as we've all seen with Greg Abel's role as it pertains specifically to him. So, uh, but yeah, I don't think anything's changed in the sense that uh, for as long as he wants to do it, Ajit will be running the insurance operations and will be uh, a director of the company and Greg Abel will be running everything else and will be a director of the company. And when Buffett's no longer the CEO, that will go to Greg. And, uh, and that's that. I think he also said something to the effect of Greg being as good a capital allocator as he is. Yeah, he did. And he said, you know, in a lot of ways, Greg has, um, you know, the same abilities and just more energy and more vigor. And, you know, he he said, I think it was actually in the Japan interview that he may actually get better results in some regards because he's got, you know, an ability to kind of run around and hold people accountable and and do things in a way that Buffett either doesn't want to do or doesn't have the time or energy to do or whatever. So that's kind of an interesting, um, interesting little tidbit. But look, I mean, I think any halfway reasonable human being would agree that there is no Warren Buffett replacement, right? There, you, you could have the most competent person in the world, the best fit in the world, and it's still not going to be Warren Buffett. And Greg Abel said as much himself. So it's it's definitely going to be a change uh, when and if it's him that actually occupies that seat at some point. So just is what it is. I'm so intrigued by the enthusiasm for Japan like, do you recall Buffett ever singling out another geography in that way for investment uh, targets? Not in this size, not outside the U.S. in this size, I don't think. I mean, certainly every time he's done anything internationally, he's highlighted the positives of it. He's done that with Israel. He's done it with Germany. Um, you know, he has substantial indirect exposure to all sorts of different countries. Uh, but no, you're right. I mean, the Japan thing definitely stands out. Uh, he's the largest outside equity holder. So non-Japanese owner of publicly traded equities, uh, in the world. And, and I think he confirmed, and I don't know that it was, I assumed there was a credible way to check this, but they, you know, they issued Japanese yen denominated debt, uh, out of Berkshire, and he said they're the largest corporate borrower outside of Japan as well. So yeah, it's a meaningful. But I mean, it's not huge. It doesn't move the needle anywhere near as much as you know Apple or some of the controlled and owned subsidiaries like uh, Berkshire Energy or BNSF or Geico or anything like that. But yeah, it's meaningful. It's a big deal. I think the most intriguing part to me is that he felt strongly enough about it to fly all the way over there and spend three or four days and meet the management of all five of these uh, trading houses and conglomerates and, and sit down with them and make it very clear to them that if they find something that they'd like to do where they're capital constrained, that all they have to do is pick up the phone. Uh, and again, I'm not an expert on those companies, but that'd be a really nice way if he likes them and thinks they're doing a good job and he could be, you know, kind of a capital provider on a multi-billion dollar basis, that would be very appealing to him and, and would potentially make a lot of sense. So that, that, that's that's a really interesting part of it. I don't know that he's going to come across another massive or major acquisition right now. I mean, I think Japanese companies historically have always been pretty reluctant to completely open themselves up to outside or Western investors. And I that's slowly changing maybe but you know i've been hearing that for 15 or 20 years so we'll see how much that really changes but in this case where you know the the japanese trading houses could be still somewhat in control or or you know even officially in control of whatever investment they're making but have buffett as a partner that would seem to make a lot of sense on both sides right well yeah no that's something i was wondering about uh speaking of both sides like both sides of the fact that for 15 years people have been like oh, i hope Jap japanese companies change their corporate ways 
And here you have Buffett, who's been so focused on capital allocation, specifically as a pillar for businesses, investing in a geography where that's not necessarily uh, you know, what, what brings people to the area. In fact, it's what keeps most people away. And I don't know, maybe one of the things I wonder about personally is if Buffett's involvement uh, and intrigue in the country could help other uh, uh, other corporate leaders in Japan find religion on the capital allocation yeah. front, start being yeah. a little, um, you know, maybe uh, a, a little different there. That's something that a lot of people have been waiting for for a long time. Yeah, know, 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, I was involved in one company when Dan Loeb came in, activist, and was like, you know, publish some documents in English was one of the pillars of uh, his activism. Yep. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that Buffett's involvement could potentially change. And I get these emails periodically from Invest in Japan, like this uh, group based in Tokyo who's trying to open up uh opportunity it was trying to open international eyes to to investments in japan and um you know what better way than to have buffett sitting in japan while being interviewed on cnbc yeah no it was like i said it was a powerful statement i agree i you know the fact that he went over there and said over and over again that he was pleasantly surprised uh about his interactions and meetings with management i think implies that he was rightfully somewhat you know, I'll believe it when I see it kind of, kind of attitude <laughs> but toward their uh, reception. But again, I think it, um, I think it speaks to the fact that you're right. I mean, I've, I've been hearing this. I went there in 2006 and that was ostensibly the purpose of the trip, right? It was like, there was going to be this big, you know, quote unquote, shareholder revolution type thing in, in Japan. And it didn't really happen. I mean, it may be in tiny little baby steps, but um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Right. And I agree. Like if, he certainly has sway and cachet there and his name and imprimatur mean a lot. And so you're right. That'll be really interesting to see. I mean, it will be really fascinating if he decides to make more uh, minority investments in public companies. Uh, that would be really interesting. It would also be really interesting if he, if he teams up with one of the five trading houses on a, on some sort of investment. Um, and it would be interesting to see if other, companies uh reach out to him directly um again though i mean part of the problem is there's some great companies um i think there's some some pretty reasonable valuations again this is an investment advice uh i i do own one but you know it's a global company and a lot of japanese companies are pretty international they also don't need a ton of capital in most senses right i mean you know they, these great companies tend to be quite profitable and the growth at least in a lot of their markets tend to be somewhat muted so you know I, it's hard to imagine it it would have to be a an acquisition or maybe some opportunity like that i don't know yeah no that's really interesting and um when you think about like how global these companies are the yen has been pretty weak but their cost structures tend to be denominated like they're global in a different way they produce what they sell in japan <laughs> Right. Whether it be something that's a physical product or something intangible. And so their margins just can't help but go up if the yen's getting weaker, if they're selling predominantly to uh, economies outside of Japan. Yeah, so they're interesting dynamics in that sense. Though you do have to be wary of how to treat your um uh, how to how to treat your exposure in the stock on the yen. You know, I think the one of my Japanese positions did quite well. Uh, if you denominate the position in, in yen over the last year and a half, but not so much so um, if your position is is in dollars. Yep, 100%. Um, and yep. I guess to, to how Berkshire structured that uh, trade, if you will, um, taking the Japanese, uh, the taking out debt in Japan helps offset some of the FX exposure. And oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's one for one almost, right? And I think he borrowed it sub 1%. Yep. So, yep. And I, I think the earnings yield at the time he did it, I think these were the numbers he was citing at the uh, the interview he did in Tokyo with Becky Quick. But I think he said the earnings yield at the time was 
you know, 13, 14, 15%. He's borrowing at less than 1%. The dividend yield was whatever, and it's gone up a big chunk since then. So yeah, it seemed those are the kind of, as long as he's right about the businesses that the the trading houses owned. And again, it was, you know, it's kind of a conglomerate style structure. So it's something he's pretty familiar with. And uh, (laughs) as long as he got that right, it was going to be hard to lose a lot of money. And that's one question we all have to ask ourselves, you know, if we're thinking about investing in Japan, is it a little easy in, in Japan, is it a little easier for Buffett to say, hey, well, you know, I don't love the capital allocation, but I do love the spread between the cost to underwrite and undertake this investment. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah, I was going to agree with that. I mean, not all of us can borrow in yen at uh, under 1%. So you know the hurdle may may not be the same for everybody looking at japan uh it it's probably not as low as it is for berkshire so yeah. you know that's no that's fair there's lots yeah. of things they do that we can't do and there's lots of things that buffett's capable of doing that other people are not capable of doing so that that's entirely fair yeah but at the same time you know i i remember um some years ago he Buffett gave a talk uh, at a at a university, and they asked him precisely this question. Basically, you can borrow in Japan in yen at one uh, percent. Why why haven't you made investments there? And he basically yeah, I said, remember I that too. Haven't yeah. found anything uh, that's attractive enough that beats one percent. Uh, I, I, that's I had fascinating. That question was probably around when Mark Cuban very publicly talked about taking all his mortgage and debt exposure and converting it to yen. So 2013. I don't look that up. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember that. I think that's actually been asked at least twice over the years at like five and 10 year intervals, like at very different points, you know? And so it's a great point, John, because I totally remember that question too. And it's fascinating that it took that long and he's been looking for that many years and really over multiple decades to say like, yeah, I, I know I can borrow for next to nothing, but I got to find something that's going to make a good spread on that money with a lot of safety and reliability. And uh, he finally finally found it. And these companies were always out there, right? But you know, finally the combination of his experience, his understanding, and the valuations available in the market all came together at the right time. Yeah, and I think it's not... Um just about the, the the valuation and the earnings yield i think um you know back when he was answering that question he really zeroed in on the roe's kind of as a buy and never sell uh, kind of investor um so i guess you know we could take his uh, activity in japan as as him basically saying yeah roe's are moving up you know they're still subpar but they're comfortably above that hurdle. Yep. Agreed. So I, I also want to say, I have one more quick thing I do that would be fun to you guys. Before I forget, I unfortunately, my flight didn't get in in enough time on Friday morning to go to the MI event that Tyler organized, but I did catch up with him later in the day. It sounded like a great event. Uh, I'm glad that went off, so I was uh, disappointed to miss it. But it was great. I, I had a, a bunch of... Uh, podcast listeners come up and say hello so that was awesome it was uh, great to see a bunch of people in in person because as you guys doesn't it seems hard to remember now but this was started during covid right we we john started this podcast in uh, the summer of two th- of 2020 right so you know in a lot of cases have never even had the chance to to meet a lot of the folks out there so that was that was great to see them in person so uh before we wrap it up this i thought this was a good uh kind of capstone piece from the uh from the weekend so i'm sure a lot of you read the the berkshire annual letter that came out a couple of months ago and in it buffett made uh, a a significant point that i think might have gone over the heads of some people he basically said you know my entire track record is you know kind of based on a handful of decisions right and he's made this point before but he really reiterated it this year and said what it basically works out to one great decision every five years and those can be clustered um but you know, over six years, it works out to a dozen truly good decisions. And so Ben Cohen, who writes a really good uh, column in the Wall Street Journal called Science of Success, highly recommended. He's had a bunch of good ones uh, recently in there. He wrote a column, I think it came out Friday or Saturday of last week about this idea. And he even cited uh, 
some Berkshire watchers, including our good friend, Larry Cunningham, who was on the podcast uh, last year and, and trying to try to trying to name what those 12 best decisions or truly good decisions would be. And so I came up with my own list, but I was stuck at 11. I actually can't decide what the 12th one would be. So do you guys want to take a stab at, or do you want me to rattle off what I think the 11 no brainer, like hall of fame Berkshire decisions would be? Well, I think it would be crazy not to at least take a couple guesses here. I don't know if I could get even like a handful uh, out there fast enough, but you know, some of the ones that immediately come to mind are uh, Geico, yep. C's, yep, Apple, yep, American Express, yep, BNSF, yep. Um. I don't know if Coke does or doesn't make the list. That's one I'd I'd uh I think it has to make the list. I mean, he he has made so much money off. He's actually made a little bit more money off of that than he has American Express. So and they were put similar, more into it too. No, no, they were almost exactly the oh, same. Oh, interesting. Size. Really? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um Gillette. So that's one that's worth considering. I I have that just outside. I don't think the dollars quite stand up and he hasn't you know he was i don't know that's a good one i we could debate that one for sure what about uh capital cities abc yeah so that's a really that's a really good one too and again i think that's an interesting one because he was taken out of it right um but and it you know it's actually would have been his disney 2.0 chance right because he uh met Walt Disney in the 1950s. I want to say it was like 1956 had lunch with the man himself. And, you know, he could have bought like a, what would have seemed like a relatively nominally sized investment at the time that would have gone on to be one of the great home runs of all time. And unfortunately he didn't and sold it too quickly. And then he got another big slug at Disney because of this, which was a huge home run. And so, but actually, you know what? I, I take it back because I I'm neglecting to think that cap cities is what brought Tom Murphy into his orbit. And uh, so I think that probably is a pretty fair one to to include. Washington Post. Yeah, so I actually kind of lump that together, but I the Washington Post in terms of what it did for him personally, I, you know, I don't think he made enough money off of it to say that it really uh, moved the needle enough at Berkshire. I mean, it was a total home run. It's just he didn't get quite enough of a chance, and it didn't like lead to some sort of lasting shift i guess i don't know but it's a good one i would put that on the on the the jv team maybe all right i'm out of guesses here you go john a cup yeah go ahead john (laughs) i think we've you got any more i I, I have a hit on it well that's only one two three four five six seven eight eight plus some some maybe candidates i think a couple Mm -hmm. of them are intangible so i think you have to you know take this with a grain of salt, but I think he would say, and anyone would say that hiring a G Jane would be right up there in terms of like value created because the insurance and reinsurance businesses are the only thing that Berkshire actually created from whole cloth. And I think you could make a great argument that those are Buffett and a G together, like the two greatest insurance investors slash executives of all time. And, and Buffett's decision to bring a G into the fold was, you know, one of his great decisions of all time. Likewise, the wind down of the textile operations at Berkshire and taking that capital out of a failing enterprise and putting it into insurance and particularly putting it into national indemnity um, in the 1960s has to be on the list because that really built the foundation for Berkshire's ultimate success in insurance. So I would include that for sure. Again, totally intangible, but you know, you mentioned C's candies, which I totally agree with, you know, laid the foundation for lots of other investments over the years. And that never would have happened without partnering with Charlie, right? So you got to put Charlie on the list. And then the only other one, um, again, for the B team, by the way, I'd put, you know, maybe the the global financial crisis preferred or the deal he struck with B of A in 2011, maybe I'd put them on my JV team. But I think um, the, the Pacific Corp Berkshire Hathaway Energy uh, acquisitions and investment uh, should probably be on the list because they've generated you know, a uh, high single digit, low double digit return on massive, massive amounts of money over a couple of decades and counting. And I think that should, should probably be on the list as well, but it's funny, right? Because look at that list. It's, uh, 
you know, not all of it to your point earlier was available Should to the blue general chip public. Stamps have come up. Should we have mentioned that one? Well, it's an interesting one because it was another, you know, kind of liquidation failing business kind of thing along with diversified retailing where they kind of learned some hard lessons, but they got some valuable experience out of it. I would probably put it on the JV team just because it didn't generate Fair. enough of totally. a lasting impact or a, an economic return. But just some headaches too. Well, sure. Yeah. But I mean, all these things, everything <laughs> here has some sort of headache associated with it, right? I mean, that's just the nature of, of business. Not Apple. That's investing. been easy as can be, I think. I guess that's true. And maybe not hiring a Jeet or partnering with Charlie. I guess there's been no headaches really there either. Yep. So, um, but yeah, I, I thought that was a fascinating parlor game. And I think it's worth considering, you know, just that mantra that you know you you have to get some of those big giant decisions right and once you get them right you have to get out of the way and not screw it up so it's just always worth reiterating for me um and likewise you know i i'll say this uh the the new eighth edition of the essays of warren buffett uh is out larry cunningham's masterful collection and collation of the uh essays the the writing that buffett's done over all the years that buffett himself fully endorses um and so, look, I'm biased here. You know, as I mentioned, Larry's been on the podcast. Larry's a friend. I, I love talking to him and, and learning from him. So, uh, this is not an unbiased opinion, but I do think I, I reread a big chunk of that book in anticipation of the annual meeting. And over the weekend, I haven't, I, I flipped through it occasionally, but I hadn't actually read it in a number of years. And it's just everything you need to know is in that book, right? I mean, just like we just ran down a list of, you know, 10, 12 plus or minus another three or four, like just monster awesome ideas that changed everything at Berkshire and led to this unbelievable performance of 20 plus percent a year over five and a half decades uh, and counting. Um, you know, the same thing is true of the ideas in that book. It's just everything you need to know. And when people, I literally bought a copy and got Larry to sign it to give it to uh, my sister and my brother-in-law because they somehow, I they had escaped my my wrath and had not read it. And, uh, you know, it's just everything you'd need to know about investing in business. And it's, it's just awesome. So that, that's what makes the Berkshire weekend worth it for me. Terrific. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap it up. Thanks so much, uh, Phil, for that, uh, eyewitness account, if you will. And, uh, Elliot, uh, some great thoughts as well. And thanks everybody for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.